when I was uh, 16 and had just started driving, my dad had a truck that was very similar to David Kilman's uh, truck. If you've seen David Kilman's, it's a standard size cab, Chevrolet, long bed uh, that would barely fit in the sanctuary here. The difference was that dad's camper top was one of the ones that extended upwards and made it look like a space shuttle. And so uh, my mom's car was a uh, Cutlass Supreme Classic, um, in my opinion, the most hideous car on the planet. And as a 16-year-old boy, I considered it gutless. Dad's truck had a V8 in it, and it was a standard. And so you all that like vehicles, you know what to choose, right? You always choose the V8 or the five-speed. So I drove that everywhere, and again, I was 16, driving something the length of a school bus. It looked like the space shuttle. And I took one of my friends home one day. He lived on the side of the lake where it's kind of similar to here, Lake Cumberland. And I, I pulled into his uh, driveway, and I was going to turn around in the cul-de-sac. And when I started to back out, he was still in there with me. I started to back out to pull back up and, and let him out. We heard a thud. And um, we, said, we, we kind of looked at each other, and it was kind of one of those uh-oh moments because the truck was new. And I jumped out, he jumped out, and we looked back there, and there was nothing there. There was nothing. And so we considered it, I don't know, I was thinking we ran over something, maybe we were hearing something, we were, you know, wishful thinking. So we jumped back in the truck. I pulled on up to his driveway, and he jumped out, took off, and went home. Well, the next morning, I uh, walked out and was getting ready for school, and when I walked by Dad's tailgate, uh, there was a considerable dent on the back of the tailgate. And I, I was thinking, man, this is not good. And my friend, I got to school, and he said, man, I saw what you hit. You hit my neighbor's mailbox and knocked it all the way down the hill. And um, <laughs> I said, wow, this isn't good, you know. And so over the course of being at school that day, came up with a story because at the local Kroger, we were having problems with the food carts flying through the parking lot and hitting vehicles. So I came home, and I said, Dad, you're not going to believe what happened. I was at Kroger, and this cart came through. I came out, and it had just rammed in the back of your truck and just an awfulest dent. And he said, yeah, I saw it. And I said, I, I'm so sorry. He said, that's all right. And so that was it. That was the end of it. And um, that was when I was 16. I graduated high school. Went four years of college, moved out to Texas to become a pastor, and um, I don't know why, I don't, I don't remember what the deal was, but it had been gnawing at me because Dad didn't fix it. So every time I walked by his truck, <laughs> this tailgate was sitting there, and um, I told Steph about it one day, we were in Texas, and so I went, I called my dad from Texas finally, and I said, Dad, how are you doing? Great. We talked a little bit, and I said, Dad, I have something to tell you, and he said, what's that? I said, well... You know, back when I was 16, and I just spilled my guts, and he was sitting there. Most of you all know my dad, and it's going to be kind of awkward when he hears this sermon, probably. Um, but uh, Dad kind of chuckled, and he said, I know. And, that, man, I could, if I'd have been in Georgia, I think I would have strangled him. And I, I said, what? You know? He said, yeah, I knew. I knew what happened. I knew you had hit something. A buggy's not big enough. That was a terrible story. And I was like, man. <laughs> but it was creative, you know, and. And instantly, I mean, all these, these feelings of guilt that I had when I came before him, and I, I said, I am so sorry. I confessed that to him, and said, I, I, please forgive me. And he said, hey, don't worry about it. I, I forgive you. They we're gone. All those feelings of guilt were gone. I had wrestled with those, and I had pent those up within me for years and years. This morning, we're going to deal with that subject. A, a lot of times we come in here, and we talk about how we are sinners saved by grace, and 
We struggle with sin, and we know that's a part of our lives, and that Christ, as, as Christians, Christ has paid the price of our sin, and he has saved us by his grace. He has forgiven us. But in the midst of that, we sometimes forget that we still wrestle with sin. We still deal with sin. And we, we sometimes can deal with sin and talk about sin. We can define sin and talk about the end result of what Christ has done in our lives regarding sin. And we never deal with repentance. And what does it mean to be repentant? What does it mean to have a penitent heart? And so that's what we're going to deal with this morning because sin plays an enormous role in our lives. Sin's the catalyst for all the, the pain and suffering that we see in the world around us, that we experience. Sin causes brokenness. Sin is the reason that you and I stand this morning to worship because we worship a Savior who has died on the cross in, in our place as a substitute for the penalty we deserve as a payment for our sin. We worship our Creator in, in recognition and knowledge of what He has done in our lives due to our own sinfulness. The reality is for many of us as well is that sin can be a stumbling block because a lot of times we, we live trying to ignore it or we try to cover it up like I did with the tailgate. We try to excuse it or push it under the rug or say, well, it's not that big a deal or we, we kind of deal with it and go, oh, man, that wasn't good and we move on. Yet we never come before God and we never repent, although God calls us to do that. Some of us live... And we don't move on past that. We live shackled by guilt. No doubt that there's some in here this morning who, because some sin in your life, whether it was this week, last year, or 10 years ago, that you still struggle with guilt. And you still walk around shackled and crippled by the guilt that plagues you. Not realizing the truth that God has blessed us with in Romans. That there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The truth that that by the blood of Christ, we are washed white as snow. And so in light of that, I want us to turn this morning to 1 Samuel, a time in the nation of Israel in which perhaps is, is the most grievous of, nation, of the nation's sins. It's perhaps the climax of Israel's sin. It's a transitional chapter. Uh, it's 1 Samuel 12. As you turn there, I just want to give you a little background. It's a transitional chapter in which Saul has just become king, and he's, he's accomplished his first great victory over the Ammonites. And after he comes back from this battle as a, as a conquering king, the people affirm his leadership, and Samuel leads all the people and Saul to Gilgal to celebrate and to officially recognize Saul as king. So what's going on here is that the period of the judges is passing, and we're entering into the period of the kings. And so it's kind of a transitional period in which all this has happened. The people are rejoicing and celebrating in chapter 11. And now Samuel brings them out and he addresses the nation. And so I want us to read. We're, our main text is going to be verses 19 to 25. But in order to really understand the text, I want us to just kind of walk through the chapter quickly. It's a lot of, a lot of text this morning, but I think it will be helpful for us as we understand what's going on in the life of God's people. So read with me in, in verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 12. Then Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have listened to your voice in all that you said to me, and I have appointed a king over you. Now here is the king walking before you, but I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. And I have walked before you from my youth even to this day. Here I am. Bear witness against me before the Lord and his anointed. 
Whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed, or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. So he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have found nothing in my hand. And they said, He is witness. So what's going on here is that, that Samuel stands up and he says, Hey, what can you accuse me of? Have I treated you wrong? No. Have I stolen anything? Have I oppressed you? No. He says, in, in view of you, you're, you're all my witnesses. And I stand before you, you as my witnesses. And here's the king. This has to be somewhat of an awkward situation for Saul. And you'll see why as it continues to go on. He says, before you and before your king, have I defrauded you in any way? Have I been a bad leader? And the people acknowledge and agree, no, you have not. So he has spoken to his own integrity, his own godliness as a leader, and the people have affirmed that. Verse 6, then Samuel said to the people, it is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. So now take your stand that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did for you and your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your, your fathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. That's a significant statement. But they forgot the Lord their God. So he sold them into the hand of Sisera, captain of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies, and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jerubal, which is Gideon, and Badon, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around you so that you lived in security. So, so here's Samuel, what does he do? He starts reminding them of God's great deeds, and we see some common cycles. In the book of Judges, we see the cycles that, that we see here, that the people are afflicted, that the people cry out to God, and God hears them, and then God delivers them. And what we find in Judges is that cycle just repeats. So once God delivers them and saves them, the people then enter back into sin, and that's that statement in verse 9, they forgot God. So God delivered them. He saved them from the hands of the Egyptians. He redeemed them out of there and did wonderful, mighty, awesome works. And when he did that, the people go on about their lives, and what do they do? They forget God. And when they forget God, he hands them over. He punishes them. He disciplines them. The people cry out to God. And what does God do? God hears and he delivers them. And so he's reminding, that, or reminding them that God has proven himself to be what? To be faithful. When the people cry out to him, God is faithful to deliver them. God hears their cries. When, he, when they seek his face, he's faithful to deliver them from their sin and from the oppression and discipline they are under. Pick up in verse 12. Here's, here's where it starts getting uncomfortable for Saul. Imagine, consider yourself, me and Saul, you've come in out of a victory. Or you're ecstatic. You're excited. You're the new king, the first king. And now listen. When you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, although the Lord your God was your king. 
Now, therefore, here is the king who you have chosen, whom you have asked for. And behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. If you will not listen to the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. So here Samuel transitions and says, here's your king. And guess what? The fact that you asked for him means you rejected God as your king. You rejected him. Now, now the request for a king isn't a surprise to God. Genesis 17, 6, God told Abraham that kings would come from his family. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20, God actually gives legislation for when the people had a king. So this doesn't catch God off guard. He knows what's happening. But what we do see is that the motive for the people requesting the king was sinful. The people had the motivation of what? We want to be like the king of the Ammonites. We want to be like, like them. We want to be like the other people. In light, of, in light of God's faithfulness, Samuel presents Saul and says, Hey, listen, although God was your king, you have requested another king. You have rejected him. You've rejected the king, the Lord of all creation, the Lord of heaven and earth. You've rejected him. In 1 Samuel 8, God encourages Samuel by telling him this is, Take heart, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. What we see here is that the motive driving what the people wanted was sinful. Their heart was sinful. And so he speaks the words to them in, in verses 14 and 15, saying, if, if you will live in obedience, if you and your king live in obedience, then I will bless you. If you live in disobedience, if you reject the Lord, you continue in disobedience to the Lord, then I will not bless you. It's consistent throughout the book of Deuteronomy. Throughout Deuteronomy, we see that obedience to God's law, obedience to God's commands bring blessing. But a rejection of God's law, a disobedience to God's law brings curse. So in verses 14 and 15, God essentially says, listen, your motives were wrong, but we can still do this. It's still permissible. You can still live with a king. It wasn't impossible for the people to live with a king under God's rule. And in verse 16 through 18, Samuel says, even now, take your stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call to the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. Then you will know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord by asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. This is a significant act because it was the day of the wheat harvest. So thunder and rain was a devastating event. It would destroy the crops. It would hinder the harvest. And so this was not a time of rejoicing. And, and when Samuel calls out, he calls upon the Lord to do this great thing. The people see it, they witness it, and they tremble. They stand in fear of God and Samuel. They're confronted with seeing their king over here who's defeated the Ammonites. He's returned victorious. 
but they're, they understand that what? Their motive for asking for the king was sinful. And so they see that, and then they see Samuel call upon the Lord, and we see the Lord of all creation answer that prayer and perform a great and a mighty work. And so you know the people are standing there, and they're kind of looking over at King Saul and going, he can't do that. We have rejected the Lord of all creation. An uncomfortable moment for the people. They're confronted with their sin that they've rejected the God of all creation. They've rejected the sovereign king of all there is. The king that redeemed them, the king that loved them, the king that created them has been rejected by them for an earthly king. Now here's where we need to go today. Is that we need to look at verses 19 through 25. And we need to look at two things. We need to look first at the people's response. They're confronted with their sinfulness. So let's look. How do they respond when they, when they see their sin? And then when they respond, how does God respond to them? What are the words that Samuel speaks to them in response to their response? So let's read together verse 19 through 25. Then all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God so that we may not die For we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. Samuel said to the people, Do not fear. You have committed all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. But serve the Lord with all your heart. You must not turn aside, for then you would go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver, because they are futile. For the Lord will, abandon his, will not abandon his people on account of his great name. Because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. But I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. Here's the key to the people's response in verse 19. Is that when the people respond to their sin, they don't respond with just feelings of remorse. They don't just feel bad about it and move on. The people respond with repentance. Martin Luther talked about there being a great difference between genuine repentance and something that was mere remorse. Listen to what he wrote. He said, there is a different repentance, not a true, but a false one. When I repent in such a way that I am not ashamed of having offended God, but merely regret having injured myself, such a repentance is very common. I myself have often repented in this way and deplored having done something foolish, stupid, and to my own hurt. I was more ashamed of the stupidity and the harm than of the sin, of the guilt, of the offense against God. Martin Luther made a distinguish. He distinguished between just mere remorse and repentance. I think he made an accurate distinct, uh, distinction there. That there's a big difference between me just feeling sorry about something and me truly coming before God in repentance. There's a big difference between me realizing my sin and going, wow, that really made me look bad, or that really hurt so-and-so, and feeling bad about that, and then actually moving on and coming before God and saying, God, this may have hurt me, 
God, this may have made me look stupid. God, this may have, may, may have hurt someone around me. But God, ultimately, I know that the greater offense is because, God, I have sinned against you. I have sinned against you. I have transgressed against you. I have violated your will and your call in my life. God, I turn from that sin. I repent of that sin. God, forgive me. God, forgive me. It was wrong. It was evil. Forgive me. There's a great difference. So the people didn't just say, we're sorry. They acknowledged their own responsibility. What did they say? They said, we have added to all our sins this evil thing. We've added to our sins. We, we knew we were sinful, and now we've added upon it. They were struck with an awful terror of God. Why? Because they've seen the works of God. They've seen him display his greatness. And not only that, they just saw him bring thunder and rain. And so they're struck with fear. They're struck with fear. And they come before God repentant. Listen, this speaks deeply to us. Because there's no one in this room, no one in this room, who is not sinful. And that means there's no one in this room who does not need to come before God in repentance. If you're not a Christian, that means you, at some point, you have got to come before God in repentance. You've got to turn from your sin and turn to Christ. We opened our time with, with the song, Come, Now's the Time to Worship. One day, every knee shall bow. Whether you want to or not, unbeliever, one day every knee will bow. When Christ returns, when you stand before God's judgment throne, you will bow the knee. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, whether you want to or not. But what did we sing? One day every tongue will confess that he is Lord, but still the greatest treasure remains for who? For those who choose him now. Call upon the Lord. Confess Christ, faith in Christ. Trust in Him alone for salvation. Repent of your sins. Turn to Him. Repent and believe the cry of Christ, the preaching of Christ. Repent and believe. But believers in this room, we are called to repentance too. Because we gather here and we struggle with sin. We struggle with the guilt and the shame of sin. We're not perfect. We know that. We experience that every day when we look in the mirror. We experience the fact that we are not perfect. We're prone to sin. And we're prone particularly to, to sin that's motivated by a desire to be like people around us, aren't we? we? We're constantly drawn to be like our neighbors who perhaps don't follow Christ. We constantly want the stuff. We, we have a desire to get the stuff, and it feeds into what? It feeds into a materialism that elevates the stuff to an idol. And so instead of using the stuff for the glory of God and for God's purposes and promoting the gospel, the stuff becomes what we serve and what we seek and what we make decisions according to. All because of a desire to be like others. We struggle with a desire of success. Success in the workplace or success on the ball field. That we can elevate work or sports to a spot of idolatry. A desire to provide for my family could lead me to being so busy that I neglect to lead them in the Lord. We struggle with that every day. The question is not, do you struggle with sin? That would be a waste of time. Because we all do. We can save a lot of time by saying, do we struggle with sin? Yes, we do. Good, let's move on. The question is this. How do you respond to the sin in your life? 
How do you respond to the sin in your life? When you are confronted with the sin, when, when God's word confronts you with your sinfulness, when a brother or a sister in Christ confronts you with sin in your life, how do you respond? What do you do? Do you turn to God in repentance? Or do you just get, get kind of remorseful and you start being sorry for yourself because the way it's made you look? Do you only respond in sorrow when you've been exposed? As long as sin is private, are you convicted of it? Are you sorrowful before the Lord? Do you come before God in repentance? Or is it only when it could damage your self-esteem or who you are according to others? How do you respond to sin? Repentance is a sign of God's work in your life. Repentance is a sign of God's work in your life. It's a sign that, that the Holy Spirit is present in you and within you and working to make you more like Christ. Do you respond in repentance? Listen, a lack of a repentant heart is dangerous. It should concern you. If repentance is not a part of your life, if repentance is not a part of my life, then we should be worried. We should be concerned. Because we're either extremely callous to God's work, we're extremely callous to our sinfulness and His holiness, or we're playing religious games. And neither of those will do well when we stand before a holy God. So, how do we respond? How do we respond? We need to respond in repentance. And as we do so, the, the words of Jerry Bridges, he points out, he says, only the repentance does not earn God's forgiveness. Only the blood of Christ can do that. So as we talk about repentance, it's not something you do to earn God's forgiveness. It's a stance that you take before God. The assurance and forgiveness and peace that accompanies comes when repentance has swung wide the door of your heart. Do you have a penitent heart you come before God saying, I have sinned. I have added evil upon my life. God, I have fallen short of your glory. Forgive me. Do you have a penitent heart? What does Samuel say? There's four things that you need to hear this morning from Samuel. That I think are words that we need to know as believers. We come before God in repentance. Here's the first thing. The first thing he speaks to him in verse 20 and 21 is to follow the Lord wholeheartedly. He does not excuse or overlook their sin. What does he say? He says, you have committed this evil. You've done it. Do not fear. You have committed all this evil. He doesn't excuse it. He doesn't say, oh, well, hey, it's not a big deal. Well, you know, everybody messes up. I wouldn't worry about it. He says, you've done it. You have sinned. You've committed this evil. But he starts in verse 20, he says, what does he say? He says, do not fear. Do not fear. Do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all of your heart. Do not fear. He seeks to calm their fears. Because why? Because God is a God of mercy. God is a just God. He's a holy God, but he is a God of mercy. He says, do not fear. You've committed the sin. You've committed the sin, but don't turn aside. Don't turn aside from following the Lord. Follow God. Don't let sin trip you up, people. Don't let it trip you up. You struggle with sin, that's great. I do too. 
That doesn't mean that I stop following Christ. It doesn't mean that I set aside my commitment to the Lord and go, wow, I've just sinned too many times now. I need to find something else to do. I need to find something else to be. I stand forgiven. So I come before God in repentance, and I seek Him wholeheartedly. Samuel calls the people, do not fear, but do not turn aside from following the Lord. Don't let that deter you from following Christ. Serve the Lord with all of your heart, with all your heart. Listen, when we experience conviction, you have basically two choices. When you see sin and you experience conviction, you can either turn to God or you can turn away from him. You can allow that conviction to drive you to the ground and to oppress you with guilt and to shackle you with shame. Or you can turn to God. And know the truth, excuse me, in James 4, 8, that, where it says to draw near to God. And what? He will draw near to you. He will draw near to you. So are you going to draw near to God today or are you going to draw away to your sin? Are you going to rest in the peace of God's forgiveness and the joy of knowing the grace of God? Or are you going to remain shackled in sin and shame and guilt? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Are you going to draw near to God? Because he'll draw near to you. So draw near to God today. Repent. Confess your sins to God. Because regardless of the struggles you have with sin, the call to love God wholeheartedly remains. Just because you sin does not erase Deuteronomy 6.4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Just because I sin, it doesn't mean that I go, okay, well, I don't need to love God wholeheartedly. No. I sin. I struggle with sin. You sin. You struggle with sin. But follow God wholeheartedly. Run hard after him. Run hard after him. Samuel calls them to do that. The second thing Samuel says in verse 22, he looks at the people and essentially he says, God will not abandon you. Follow him. Commit to your life to him. Follow hard after him. Love him wholeheartedly. Because God will not abandon you. Why should we still follow the Lord when we sin? Because God will not forsake his people. Now here's the kicker. Why will God not forsake you? Why will he not reject you? Why will he not look at you and go, well, <laughs> there you did it again, Steph, you sinned. <laughs> You're out of here. Why? For his name's sake. Because of his great name. It's not because of your worth. It's not because of your worthiness, how great of a person you are, but it's because of his glory. This is consistent in the scripture. Psalms 25, 11, the psalmist prays for forgiveness according to what? Your name's sake, O Lord. Isaiah 48, 9 says this, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it from you that I may not cut you off. Not because you're great, but because of my name's sake. You know what verse 8 says preceding that? God says, I knew you would deal treacherously. I knew it. I knew it. Because, because of my great name and my grace, he knew but he still set his grace upon you. God knew that you're not perfect. God knew that when you were saved, when you confessed Christ, you didn't instantly wake up and go, whoo, man, I don't sin anymore. Man, this is great. He knew that wasn't the case. And he still set his grace upon you. He still set his mercy upon you. He still set his love upon you. He still called you to love him wholeheartedly. Why? For his name's sake. God saves us by his grace and for his glory. 
For it's by His grace and for His glory that He remains faithful to His people when we struggle with sin. Everything's tied to God's grace. Everything's tied to His glory. You didn't earn your salvation and your struggles with sin will not erase it. So any lie that you're struggling with, that you're struggling with sin and, and that you just can't do it and you can't come before God anymore, it's a lie. The guilt that you experience because of sin in your life, that's not of God. God convicts. The Holy Spirit brings conviction. But when we come to God in repentance and faith, He cleanses us of all unrighteousness. Know that. Know that today. Number three, verse 23. Samuel looks to the people and he says, moreover, he says, listen, here's, here's who God is. You're called to love him and he will not abandon you because of his great name's sake. But moreover, in addition to that, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, but I will instruct you in the good and right way. Your leaders will pray for you. Your leaders love you. You need to know that. I think it's sometimes, I don't know how to describe it, I was thinking about this this week, I think sometimes it's mildly humorous, but most of the time it's frustrating to know that, that many, or some, I should say some maybe, some of you, perhaps many of you, try to put on a front like you don't experience struggles with sin. Like, like we expect you to be perfect. <laughs> Wake up. We know you're not perfect. We, we want to hear more about the band-aids you need and the surgeries you're going to have. We know that sanctification is a process. We want to hear about your struggles with sin. We want to hear you say that sin is whipping me right now. Sin's getting the best of me. I'm struggling. I'm struggling. We want to hear that. We want to know that because we expect you to struggle with sin. Sanctification is a process. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. But it's a work. <laughs> it's a work that the Holy Spirit does in your life day by day, year by year. And so Samuel commits to do two things. What does he commit to? He commits to pray for them. And our commitment is the same. People, we want to pray for you. When we gather as a staff, and we gather together for staff meeting once a week, and sometimes more often, depending on what's going on with the church, we pray. The first thing we do is pray. We go over what are the needs? What are people struggling with? What's coming up? What prayer needs do we have? And we come to the Lord on your behalf. Why? Why? Because we know it's only by God's grace that you're going to conquer that. You're not going to beat sin on your own. Sin will get you every time. But by God's grace, He will give you the strength to live in righteousness. We want to intercede for you and we want to battle with you. Let us do it. Let us do it. The second thing Samuel says is, is I'll teach you. I'm, I'm going to instruct you in the right way, in the good and the right way. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 has called us to equip you. We're called to teach you. We're called to instruct you in the word. You know what? I'll go ahead and tell you. When you come to us and you, you say, hey, listen, I'm struggling. I need your prayers. We're not going to give you a pat on the back and go, hey, that's all right. Don't worry about it. We'll probably do what Samuel says and address it. We'll probably say, wow, okay. You're right. 
You did commit that. It is sinful. But we're not going to go, man, you are one pathetic loser. <laughs> you know, We're not going to do that. We're, we're going to look at you and, and we're going to acknowledge it. And we're going to say, hey, been there because we have. And we're going to say, let's go before the Lord and let's trust his grace and let's know his forgiveness and let's walk from here. Let's take it step by step and let's move on. Follow God wholeheartedly. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Run hard after him. Turn from your sin. Come before him in repentance. Turn away from it. We won't excuse it. We won't overlook it. But we rest in the promise that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And we want you to do the same. Let us teach you. Let us instruct you. Let us pray with you. Let us pray for you. Let your leaders do what we're called to do. We know you're sinful. Don't try to hide it. We're sinful. Just like you. Come before us. Allow us to partner with you. The final thing Samuel says is he calls them to remember. He calls them back to where they began. His final goal was what? To set their hearts and minds upon God. To remember the promises of blessing for obedience and the punishment for disobedience. He says, listen, you know all this. You've come repentant. God will not forsake you. Love him. Follow him. But know that as you move forward, loving God and, and obeying Him brings blessing. But if you continue in your sin, it will not bring blessing. One of the unfortunate consequences of the health and wealth gospel is that it's really tainted our understanding of God's blessing. He doesn't promise abundant monetary, perfect health, and an easy life. He, he doesn't promise that. But He does promise to bless you. He does promise to fulfill and to answer your needs, to provide for your needs. He does promise to be with you. Maybe those blessings come in relationships. Maybe those blessings come in the words spoke to you that convicts you and drives you to your knees. Maybe those blessings come through a trial that you go through that draws you closer to God and increases your understanding of a great and mighty God we serve. Regardless, we're called to remember who God is, what He's done, and our call to follow Him wholeheartedly. God does bless obedience. It doesn't earn salvation. But we see in Scripture that He does bless it. Maybe not the way that many of the television evangelists proclaim it. But God does bless His people. Know that. So today, I just simply want you to hear that the sin that you're struggling with calls you to come before God in repentance. The sin that we struggle so hard with is not a call to wallow around in it. It's not a call to wallow in guilt. It's a call to come before God in repentance and to trust Him to do what He said He will do, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So as we close our time, I want, to hear, I want you to hear the words again that Scott read earlier. Bow with me as we pray. How blessed is He whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. 
I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. God, in my prayer this morning, is that, Father, you would work a spirit of repentance among us. God, we know that we struggle with sin. We know we wrestle with it. And, God, we're prone to guilt. We're prone to wanting to hide it. But, God, we know that you know everything. And there is nothing hidden from you. So, God, I pray that you would work within our hearts a humility, a teachable spirit to come before you and to repent, to turn from our sins. And God, as we do, God, it's my prayer that we would know of your love and your mercy and your grace. That God, we would know your call to continue steadfastly pursuing our relationship with you. To continue following you. To trust you. And to know that you will not forsake us because of your great name. God, thank you for that assurance. Thank you. God, may we as a people come before you confessing our sins and trusting you to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, knowing that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.